There are many wonderful people adding to the positive outlook of a backcountry and hunting lifestyle. Our goal is to join them in promoting that outlook. Welcome to the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast, where we share stories, tips, and tactics of our outdoor pursuits. Welcome back to the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast, everyone. This is Brian, and I'm extremely excited today. Uh, And like you heard on the last episode, had a quick promo. My good friend Cody Brown is joining me, and here in a little bit, he's going to take the host seat and kind of grill me on Alaska. And so I'm really excited about that. Cody and I have been friends for a long time. We share many interests, a love of the outdoors together. Our, our, our wives are good friends, and it's just kind of, I met Cody in Kentucky, and I'm going to let him share his story with you because it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. And uh, you might have heard Matt Wright on one of the Boundary Waters podcasts here in the past. Uh, I think it was called An Evening in the Boundary Waters with Matt Wright. And Cody and Matt are also good friends, so we've kind of got some unique connections here. And I want to just start off by letting Cody kind of share his initial contact with the outdoors and then share some of his the history that he has with the outdoors and then kind of what he's into now. So, Cody, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks so much. Uh, you mentioned the title of that podcast with Matt. Uh, when I first heard that, I thought for a second if maybe I'd clicked on the wrong one and I was uh, listening to a romance novel review podcast. <laughs> Uh, an evening in the boundary waters with Matt Wright, uh, but no, that was a that was a great podcast. Totally, it's, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a great podcast. It was really cool. Matt, like you said, Matt and I go way back. You and I uh, been friends for several years. Um, I'm born and raised here in Kentucky. Uh, you know, as far as outdoors, some of my earliest memories are of my dad waking me up early on a Saturday morning and us getting out to uh, hunt deer squirrel, uh, rabbits, dove, uh, turkey, fishing, you name it. We kind of did everything um, under the sun that we could get our hands on. And then in the off season, uh, we were shooting skeet a lot, practicing, um, you know, with our rifles, uh, with our shotguns, just, you know, getting as good as we could and just really just spending time. I would think growing up, uh, hunting was definitely a social thing for my dad and I. Um, we grew up in a house. I was the only boy and the oldest kid. And so, uh, there being the, having two younger sisters and, and my mom, it was just a great opportunity for dad and I to get away, uh, spend time with one another. Um, let the, the sisters and mom do some things, um, go shopping, go to the house, you know, do projects that they enjoy doing. And there was just really a bonding time for my dad and I. And then a lot of my dad's friends lived really close there. And so we would just spend a lot of time with those type of guys, guys that just loved the outdoors. Um, some of them were taxidermists. Some of them worked factory jobs, but we all kind of came together every weekend around something outdoors. And so it was definitely instilled in me then. Did a ton of whitetail hunting. Um, here in Kentucky, it kind of flies under the radar a little bit. Yeah. But what I would argue is some of the best whitetail country uh, in the nation. I don't know. You've hunted here as well. Yeah. I'd argue the exact same thing, you know, but I, I actually, we'll keep it that way. Yeah. Actually, never mind. There's no deer in Kentucky. 
Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep that way. We need to keep it a secret. Uh, but definitely, in, especially in this area, um, they just put out the deer regulations for this coming up season. Um, and now in the zone that we hunt in, every time you buy an extra doe tag, it comes with two doe so they just need us to whack the population quite a bit this year there's too many in this zone so a lot of opportunity and so it's been like that as long as i can remember growing up just a lot of deer maybe not to this extent but just always an opportunity and so we rifle hunted a ton growing up um like i said did a lot of fishing and stuff and then i didn't get into bow hunting until much later on actually when you came down to kentucky um, and we kind of struck up our friendship and through a mu- mutual friend of ours, you got involved with it. And that kind of, uh, kind of stirred me as well to get involved, um, with that. So I kind of took up that journey a little bit, you know, I've killed five or six animals with my bow. Um, you know, I'm really looking for a nice buck this year. Um, the first deer that I ever got with my bow, I had a really terrible golden Eagle compound bow from like the late eighties. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just a just a terrible bow but uh you know my dad had said you know we wouldn't upgrade until you know I took an animal with that and uh so I'll never forget that time this this doe uh walked out in the field in a blind dad was hunting you know probably six seven hundred yards down the field from me uh took that doe and then kind of got hooked um on the bow thing from there it just it's hard to argue with extending your season, getting the opportunity to get close to animals like that. And so um, not a pro by any means, but um, really excited about continuing to hone that skill um, and be able to hunt many more animals, you know, in the future. And then uh, my first hunt out West was out with you guys and the bear film and having the opportunity to, to capture that and be the videographer on that project was um, super fun and definitely got bit by the bug um, yeah. there of just the love for the West and um, all the experience that comes along with it. Yeah. That, uh, that bear film, if, if you guys are listening out there and you haven't seen that yet, you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo. Uh, it's called Respect, and it's a black bear film that was in the Full Draw Film Tour. And so to kind of put the pieces together, Cody was the one who did the filming, and he and I kind of joint edited that film, and we were pretty happy with the project and uh, pretty proud of how it went and kind of the story and everything that we we kind of were able to capitalize on some pretty unique things with my grandfather and uh, had some pretty cool ideas for putting that film together. That's just something I'll never forget. That was awesome, you know. Definitely. It was such a cool experience. And then, you know, we've learned a lot since then. Being your first project, you know, you always look back and think of, you know, stuff that you would have done differently. But I just think that group of guys, you know, you, myself, Jeff, um, Chase, I mean, it was just I don't know if it could have gotten any better than that, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Just the the bonding, the first experience for all of us out in an environment like that. Um, just a really neat thing. Yeah, and it's it's kind of cool. So a little bit more. I feel like we're we're kind of it's kind of nice. We're able to have with having you on today, put pu- pieces of the puzzle together. So as you guys know, as the listeners, um, good friend Nakota is the one who uh, he takes care of all the engineering for this podcast. So the sound and the editing. And you heard Cody just mention a couple other guys. Jeff Snyder. He's been on the podcast before. So. Uh, Chase, who Cody also mentioned, he's a heck of a photographer and he has been on the team for a while. So that kind of rounds things out. You've obviously heard from Joe and Chad, but uh, it's kind of nice try to round things out and get all these guys kind of unique stories and backstories, kind of get everybody 
in on the podcast so you can hear from them. But uh, you, the other thing to kind of continue with your story, you you know, when you got into archery hunting, um, you, you had always turkey hunted as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. Loved it growing up. Uh, never with a bow, obviously, but just a lot of a lot of shotgun hunting. You yeah, know, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's awesome. And why don't you tell kind of everybody just kind of what you do now and what you've got going on and what you're involved with? Because obviously you're still chasing those animals with a rifle and bow, and uh, just just got a new Vortex rifle scope. <laughs> yeah, yes, we did. I'm really excited about that. Just trying to put together uh, something for some long range hunting. Um, definitely want to go out and do a, a pronghorn antelope hunt sometime. Um, and so I actually got a, a new um, Savage 6.5 Creedmoor uh, late last year and um, just picked up a scope to put on and get everything sighted in this summer. So really excited about that. But um, as far as what's going on here in Kentucky, um, my I feel like I should definitely mention my wife. If you get any opportunity to uh, travel the places that we get to travel and, and, and be gone sometimes like that and for extended periods of time, you'd you definitely need to thank your thank your spouse for that totally. uh, for being patient. Uh, <laughs> totally. It's definitely not the norm. Um, so my wife Jerusha and I um, both born and raised here. So we live uh, in Owen County, Kentucky. Involved with a lot of stuff um, with the outdoors. We love to camp, hike, hunt. We got two um, labs as well. Uh, that kind of rounds out our family right now. But we own um, a video production business. So we do everything from business commercials to weddings. Um, and things like that help fund a lot of the outdoor pursuits and the outdoor filming and stuff that we like to do. You know, you got to pay the bills somehow. Yep. And so we do that uh, in a lot of different ways. So we just really like to tell stories. i um, always been drawn to creative stuff and unique stories. And so to, to if you can match that up with the outdoors, it's kind of the perfect combination uh, to be able to chase really cool animals and then also look for the stories, you know, within that. And so we've... Um, yeah, we've been doing that for, this is our sixth season, um, doing it since we started. Uh, it was right after we got married, and then um, about the third year, pretty much doing it full-time. So, a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome you guys have been doing it that long. It's crazy. Yeah, crazy. definitely. It, does, it seems like it's flown by, for sure. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, hopefully you guys, as the audience, got an opportunity to little know a little bit more about Cody and and uh, we're going to kind of switch gears I'm going to give up the host seat and let Cody take that and kind of question me on some things the we wanted to bring you this podcast uh it's interesting because as I was thinking about it this podcast will be releasing on the opening day of sheep season for Alaska so wow any of you guys who are listening right now just know that I'm already way back in the Brooks range trying to find a, a doll ram. So uh, that's kind of interesting to think about when, when we think about we record these and put them out at a later date. So, uh, yeah, if um, we've got a few things that we kind of want to go through, hopefully give you guys some information. Haven't done a podcast on Alaska yet, which it mainly is my fault because I've been tr trying to figure out how to really best put it into words. And there's going to also be an article that if you haven't checked out yet, um, it's, it would be kind of this in written form to some degree. It's the latest blog on the Contact Outdoors website and that we promoted recently. You'll have an opportunity. You can read that. And it was finally kind of my 
best attempt at putting down into words what the experience has been like. So if you if you like this podcast and, and you, you learn some things from this, then I would kind of point you towards that article that came out as well. And that's, again, that's on the Contact Outdoors website. The other thing that will be in the show notes is, uh, Cody, you know, you th- he, I think, did you mention that the name of the business is Beyond the Lens Productions? And did you mention? Yeah, that? I don't think I did. Beyond the no, yeah. Beyond the Lens Productions. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. So if uh, that'll be in the show notes, if you're looking to have uh, any work done or a wedding, can hit Cody up, and you can kind of go to his website and check out on Vimeo. He's always posting the latest highlight videos from weddings, and they're beautiful. Just really really good i i look back now and i'm like dang it i wish i would have had danielle and i would have had that because it's just so cool oh yeah my my wife and i do it for a living and we don't even have one so (laughs) we feel you there yeah well cool man well why don't we why don't we get into alaska a little bit yeah absolutely first off uh how many seasons is this for you i feel like that's kind of a good place to start yeah definitely so this year 2019 will be my third season so my first season was in 2017 obviously. And yeah, it's weird to already think that this is my third year into this. Yeah. And, uh, how, how, how many uh, days in the back country will you be this time around? Uh, I calculated it up the other day. I think it'll be 43, 43 total. Yeah. That's a ton. Yeah. And th- this year it's interesting. The last couple of years, the first year, obviously I just did the, the, the aspect of the trip that, the guy that I work for, his name's Dave Marsh, and uh, he does two separate hunting areas. And, and the first year, 2017, I only did the Brooks Range, which was 30 days. So the last two years, 2018 and this year, I, I transfer to the next hunting area with him for moose season. So that puts me around 43 days. So Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe we can um, start off with how you got this opportunity, right? Uh, not an opportunity that comes along every day for for most no. people. And so um, what did that look like to get the opportunity, you know, maybe for somebody that's just like, how in the world does this even, even happen? Um, and I think it's kind of a unique part of the story because, you know, you and I go way back and I actually had the opportunity to be there with you uh, kind of in the, the the beginning of this thing. So why don't you just explain that for a few minutes? Yeah, you were there in the initial contact with Dave. So I guess it would have been around 2012. Uh, if I remember, if my memory serves me right, I think 2012. You, myself, Jeff Snyder, uh, Steve Meadows, kind of one of the guys that's a that's a mentor to us in the hunting in the hunting world. Yeah, we went to the Grand Ole Opry Hotel for the National Wild Turkey Federation convention, uh, which is super cool. And there's a ton of booths. And if you guys have ever been to those conventions like that, there's just, as a hunter, you kind of walk the aisles of of those halls and just look at all the calls and guns and knives and everything you can think of for hunting. And, you know, I think going to Alaska and and some of those big game species that you find there have were something that were that that was always on my mind growing up. You know, you kind of grew up, you know, you and I similarly had a history fishing, hunting deer, you know, squirrel hunting. When I moved to Kentucky then turkey hunting, and now we've got turkey in Minnesota. So those are kind of some of the things that I grew up with 
And when it when it came to kind of more of these quote unquote prestigious opportunities, the game animals, you know, brown bears, moose, doll sheep, caribou, those were something that were kind of like a dream, you know, something you thought about and and thought was so far off in the distance. And so it was kind of nerve wracking because we were walking down those halls, and I remember we saw the the booth, big game, big country. And that's, you know, obviously Dave's company that he started and he's been guiding. This will be his 26th year as a master outfitter and guide in Alaska. So I think we walked up to his booth and just started talking to him. Which is, which is very interesting because if you've ever been to any of those shows, uh, you can't really, you couldn't really spit without hitting a booth of somebody that outfits. Right, right. They're just everywhere. And, you know, obviously the, the Alaskan big game booths um, are a lot more are a lot less prevalent as some of the others but there's there's still a decent amount of them there because that's one of the that's one of the bigger shows you know the the NWTF convention is one of the bigger shows yeah. and so it was just interesting walking up and having a conversation with Dave he was really gracious in answering our questions and I think that ended with getting his email and giving him ours yeah um and so yeah I just thought in the back of my mind, I just, for some reason, felt like over the next years, I should keep in contact with him, you know? And so if you're listening out there, I can pretty much boil the opportunity of going to Alaska and doing this kind of amazing adventuring up there, not as really something that was because of my skill set or my understanding of the outdoors or hunting, it ended up being kind of a luck of the draw thing where I just kind of was persistent and kept in contact with Dave, would send him emails about things we were doing with Contact Outdoors, trips we had planned, send him the bear film, things like that, you know, to kind of show him here's what we've been up to. And, uh, and, and then it just kind of so happened that he needed some extra help one year and he, he called me and asked what I was doing in August of 2017. I'll never forget those words specifically right. because I I had done enough research to know that that's sheep season. So uh, when he asked that, I immediately talked to my wife, Danielle, and we came up with a plan that allowed me to take the time off to go up there for the first time. So that's kind of how I got into it. It was just really, it's kind of weird. It was seemed to be luck of the draw. Um just, you know, being persistent to stay in contact with somebody like that, but definitely it wasn't because he looked at my skill set and was like, man, I got to have this dude up here helping me. <laughs> right, right. Not like you, you had know? the sheep experience, you know, to begin with. Right. I, hadn't, and honestly, it's interesting you bring that up because I hadn't laid my eyes on many of the species that are that call that place home until my first trip up there. You know, I'd never seen a doll sheep before. Yeah, I think it really just goes to to show, you know, not to treat any connections that you um get with people in places like that and not to not to treat it as common. You know, you just right. never know um what can come from relationships that you that you make um whether it be at at a show or online or or whatever. You never really know, you know, what it'll lead to. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was cool. The, the whole backstory, I get that question a lot. Well, how did you get the opportunity to do this? And and sometimes I just want to say, um, you know, sometimes it fe- I feel like it'd be easier for me to say, I, I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, just, I don't, I really don't know, but so it's kind of a long backstory, but sometimes it, cool sometimes it feels it. a little bit like things happen to you, uh, than the other way around. 
Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, why don't you maybe take us through um, the details of the first time that you've that you've gone? So you're coming up on your third season. I'm sure you've thought a lot and probably collected your thoughts about the first time that you went. Uh, Maybe kind of give some details about that because you know you kind of spoke to it a little bit earlier, but Alaska is kind of one of those. uh, dreams that a, a young boy might have. It seems like this very, very far away place. Um, and you probably have just some things that you've seen um, online or in movies of, of what Alaska's like. Um, there's a bunch of reality shows now based on Alaska. So what was a, what was it like for you um, being where you were? And maybe talk a little bit about the area that you guys go to as well as the experience that first year. Yeah, so I, I guess first off, it'd be good for me to mention that that 2017 sheep season with Dave was actually the first time I'd even been to Alaska. So that was definitely baptism by fire. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, and, and it was, it literally felt like, like just a, a, a wild adventure because I flew out of Minneapolis, landed in Fairbanks, and then took a secondary flight to a small Arctic, uh, native village. And, Ended up, you know, sleeping in a shipping container. Dave was already in the backcountry. He was had already been flown into the Brooks Range to the hunting area. And so I was going to be flown out the next day. So I, I show up at this dirt strip airport and he, Dave kind of gave me these, inst- these instructions, walk, you know, head over to the shipping container and kind of hunker down there till the next morning. So slept in a shipping container that night and woke up in the bush pilot. You know, that, that I guess for me was the, the reality when we started to taxi towards that dirt runway in the bush plane, uh, and begin to pick up speed, you know, and, and you can, you just can hear that engine revving up louder and louder and you're, you're getting ready to, to, to kind of leave the ground. That was when it just really hit me. Yeah. You know, that like, whoa, okay, now there's no going back now. And, you know, it's kind of cliche, but the feeling of that is much different than the saying. <laughs> right, right, when you're you know? there. Right, so the the bush flight, I think, was worth it, was worth the, com- completely worth the trip. If, I think I told the bush pilot that when we landed on the tundra, that, if if that flight was all I got to experience, that was that was enough because it was unbelievable. You fly for miles over the Yukon Flats, which is just this extremely uninhabitable swampland for miles and miles and miles. And in the far distance, you can see the Brooks Range kind of coming into sight. So, and then we stayed below the top of the mountains as we flew in. We kind of flew up this valley. And so we landed on the tundra. Base camp is like the best way to describe it. It would be kind of uh, an uh, kind of an upscale backpacking tent is what base camp is. So a lot of people ask, you know, I get questions all the time. Do you stay in a cabin? Do you have horses or mules? You know, this uh, where we are is in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So Anwar is what they call it, and it's in the heart of the Brooks range. Literally, if you, if I could kind of pinpoint on the map where we are, it's just, it, it's just unbelievable when you realize how secluded you are. So landed through that experience, you know, just being at base camp and we had our first hunter come in knowing that I was going to be there for a month. 
uh, it, it's just kind of surreal. And one of the things that caught me off guard was the vastness of it. And I, and I, and I pretty much have come to the realization now, as I look at it, now this being my third season, the vastness, I think the reason for the, the feeling of vastness there is because of the lack of trees. Yeah. You know, because you can, when, when you're in an area where there's trees, you can kind of get a scale um, based on how small the trees look on a mountainside, how far away it is. But because there aren't any, it's incredibly difficult to gauge distance there. Did, uh, so, did that surprise you when you started hiking? Yeah, big time. Yeah, something, a hike to the base of a mountain that Dave told me, you know, he said, this is where we're headed. I, I thought we'd be there in a couple hours, and, and it ended up being seven hours. Wow. You know, and just miles and miles and miles. So... Yeah, that was one thing. And then I mentioned earlier the species. It was crazy because until I until I went to Alaska and in the Brooks Range, I had never seen in real life, you know, in the wild, a doll sheep, caribou, grizzly bear, arctic wolf, wolverine, um, obviously brown bear and moose, you know, and we'll get to that a little bit later and that's in a different area. I'd seen moose before, but never seen brown bear, but those five species I listed off, I hadn't seen those before. And I saw all of those in the first two days. I mean, you're talking stuff that, that pe- some people only see in national geographic channel right. type stuff, you <laughs> right. know? <laughs> right, right. And we're seeing, you know, definitely seeing caribou, uh, definitely seeing caribou, doll sheep, and grizzly bears every day. Wow. Pretty much. Uh, you, Wolverine, that's kind of a, a unique sighting even there. But, and, and then wolves, you definitely hear wolves every night, but for the most part, you know, don't, don't see them every day. Yeah. But yeah, so that, that was interesting as part of the experience of seeing all those animals. So I'm there and, you know, you, you're trying to take all of it in and, and it's so crazy how, you when you get in an environment like that, how small you feel, you know, you just—it's the smallest I'd ever felt, and I realized that this is the this is the most secluded from from populations of people that I've ever been in my life as well. Yeah, how long's you know? the the plane ride to the nearest livable place? Uh, I would even I guess you you could even say to the nearest road would be a bush flight of a couple hours. Yeah. You know, so it's it's really really far out there, and and you definitely feel that as you're flying out there, you're that's kind of just constantly on your mind, you know. Yeah. So um, yeah, maybe maybe speak to the uh, to the the daylight hours as well, because I'm sure that was a little bit different. For yeah, you. yeah, it definitely was, especially me being a redhead. That's you know number <laughs> <laughs> numbered in the top probably five things on my gear list is sunscreen. Because just, just gobs of sunscreen. Totally, because it's it's ruthless up there on me, man. I'm a I'm a redhead, a ginger, as they say, and I I don't operate well in in intense sun conditions. So up there, when I get there, at least uh, in the beginning of August, it ends up being light for about 18 hours a day, and it never truly wow. gets completely dark i guess the darkest portion would be about four hours of the day where it's still twilight you could definitely still see pretty decent 
And obviously the light begins to change towards the end of the season. That's a couple things that are interesting about getting there. When I show up on August 8th, the landscape is completely brilliant green, almost like you'd think you were in Ireland. Um, When I leave, you know, almost a month later, the, the landscape has completely changed and it looks like the end of fall. The, the, the fall colors have set in, the reds and yellows and oranges have set in completely in the whole landscape. Some of those dwarf arctic birch is kind of the main shrub that's there. That that those leaves are beginning to fall off and they're about, you know, waist to knee to waist height. And uh yeah, it's just the temperatures, that's another thing we show up it could be 80 in the middle of the day and 50 at night. When we leave it could be high 30s in the middle of the day and dip below 20 at night, depending on the, on the season and the time. So it's definitely, it's a quick change. August is a quick change for that area. Yeah. That's gotta be, that's pretty drastic. So you kind of have to be uh, ready for that. I mean, mentally, I'm sure gear wise as well, just um, to be able to handle such a swing from the beginning to the end of season like that. Yeah, and it's weird because that now that I'm in my third season, the the experience, you know, we wanted to talk about the experience a little bit, but the experience extends uh on the front end and the back end of my actual season and my time up there now. And it's interesting because on the back end literally is kind of a block of time of recovering from it, and then there's this ramp back up to preparing again for it. You know, and you know, I know these days in social media and you know, things like that, people kind of make fun of for some reason, and I don't really understand it, but they make a deal about you don't have to be fit to kill an animal, you know, and, and I would agree with that to some degree, especially if you're sitting in a, in a blind or a deer stand and which I love to do. So I'm not knocking it at all. But if you're going to go on back to back sheep hunts, where you don't have a day in between. I mean, you get back to the strip, hopefully with a ram, and the bush pilot flies in, and when he's flying in, he's dropping off the client that you're going to be taking back out for another 12 days. Yeah, and picking up the other then at that point, right? Yeah, and his sheep and taking him in. So uh, one sheep hunt is an, is is definitely enough, and so to, to, to do that back-to-back, I try my best to... This is not something, if you're out there listening and you're thinking about doing a sheep hunt, unless you're in great shape, do not take the advice that I'm about to give. Uh, I actually, this year, the previous two years I haven't done this, but this year I actually gained weight for the season. And I always make sure that I'm... I'm decently strong. I've never been a super strong guy, but I but I've definitely grown in in areas of strength, especially core and legs. You know, and um but the biggest thing is making sure that that I'm cardio ready. So, I do a lot of biking and I ramp that up. I actually will complete my last workout, you know, about a week before I leave and just kind of give my body that time to recover because I hit it pretty hard in the gym and and out on the bike and uh, I, there's this hill near my house that I'll hike up with my pack on. But uh but I gained weight specifically this year because the last 2 years during that time of sheep season I I lost 20 pounds both years. Yeah, you just you just can't really take in enough uh, for what you're what you're putting out no and and dave creates a, a wonderful menu so we're we've got a lot of food it's not that we don't have enough but when you're 
when you're putting on, you know, we tried to calculate it as best we can in this rough, rough estimates, but near 200 miles, um, you know, for, for the season, you know, you're, you're bumping up close to 200 miles probably by the time that that season is closed, you know, and, and that's for the Brooks range and the other area. And, and it's because you're not, you're not coming in and hunting right from base camp, right? You guys are, are heading out from base camp and setting up kind of spike camps right along the way. So you're traveling quite a bit down the range. Yeah. If things go as planned and we don't have any serious issues, our goal is to leave base camp with a couple tarps, like teepees or tarps, and not come back to base camp until we've got a ram. Yeah. So <clears throat> we're out there in bivvies and tarps at times, and, you know, so it's 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 strenuous. And like I said, I know on social media people make a big deal about being fit or not being fit, you know, hashtag fit to hunt and, right. you know, all, all <laughs> that stuff that goes on. Some of it's really funny, and I can definitely joke around with some of it, but I definitely know for me being up there it's far better that I'm prepared physically as best I can, you know, and, and so that's a big part of it. Like I say, on the, on the front end of the season and on the back end of the season, just the experience definitely I've found is not only while I'm there, you know, and and then aside from that, which I know we're going to talk about just the gear preparation as well. Yeah, there's a lot that that goes into, like you said, all aspects of it. And, you know, I know people think, you know, it's just, uh, you know, so many days out of the year, but I'm sure that it's, it probably surprises you how quickly it comes up again. And if you don't have it on your mind and that preparation isn't going, uh, you could find yourself in some trouble. Yeah. And I I think with the experience thing, before we kind of move on a little bit, I wanted to mention too, uh, I've, I've talked a lot about the Brooks range, but we do have an area where we hunt brown bear and moose. And I did that last year and I'll do it again this year with Dave. It's really interesting because it's kind of a, it's a stark contrast. You know, you go up in the Brooks range and sheep season is like a, like an ultra marathon. And then you go to the moose and brown bear area and it's like an extended CrossFit workout. <laughs> right. Because you don't do a ton of distance, but you do a lot of heavy lifting, especially yeah. if you get a moose down. So last year was my first experience with watching a moose. Fortunately, the moose, we spotted it at about 200 yards and it came into all the way into 15 yards. And the hunter took that moose and yeah, so the, the, and I think from that moment, it took us about the next 12 hours to kind of break that moose down and move all of the meat to the edge of a lake where a bush plane could come pick it up. And, you know, so that, that aspect of hunting, hunting in that area is, is really unique as well. It's a lot less mountainous and more kind of boggy, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely what we would call definitely in Minnesota and Kentucky mountains, right? You know, especially in Minnesota, we don't have mountains, uh, but they're, they're still mountainous areas, but not like the Brooks range, you know? Yeah. And it's all, all fun and games until you get an animal that size down. Yeah. Yeah. Last year we, so in certain parts of Alaska, you have to keep the quarters intact, so on the moose, we we have to keep the quarters intact. You can obviously take it at that last joint, you know, like what would we we'd consider almost like our knee joint. You know, you can yeah. you can take take it off there. So you've got this just this big ham, this kind of rear quarter, and then the and then also the fronts. But yeah, we got both of those quarters back to 
kind of our point of origination back to this lake where this gentleman, the bush pilot, has a shed set up, and he's got a big scale outside to weigh everybody's stuff before he packs it in the bush plane. And so Dave was like, you know, said to said to Rick, hey, Rick, throw these throw these quarters on there. I want to see how much they weigh. And one was 156, and the other one was 154. Wow. Yeah, so they were heavy. Needless to say, they were heavy to carry out of there. And, you know, it. like I said, I'm not the strongest guy in the world. I'm kind of one of those guys who I'm really confident with just kind of going forever, um, feeling like I can go a long way. But, yeah, putting 150-some-odd pounds on your back and, and hiking – in, in kind of hip waders through boggy terrain for a mile and a half, kind of transferring that meat to the edge of a lake and then going back and getting another load and then going back and getting another load. Right, it, right. It, start, it starts to get pretty hardcore. Well, and at some level, you have to start thinking about uh, sustainability, right? It's like, yeah, I could do this once uh, pushing it, but, uh, you know, can I, can I do this next year? Yeah. Don't, don't ruin myself, you know, right. Uh, before the next time. And that's something I see a lot of guys, whether it be Western hunts or going to Alaska, I see so often guys putting posts up on social media about training regiments or how to prepare something that I would definitely caution people against would be while they're training for Western hunts or going to Alaska or things like this, you know, going out to hunt elk or moose, whatever it might be, is to load their backpacks up with crazy amounts of weight and train all the time like that. Because it, I think it just probably does more harm than good when it comes to your stability and just the chance for injury. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking that you need to go out and go to the, go to a hill or go hike up a mountain with a hundred pounds on your back all the time, your chance for injury and then just kind of not being able to recover from that is, is probably pretty high, you know? So I, I rarely do anything above 50 pounds Yeah, and, and I just do it more often, you know? And, well, and in, in most scenarios, um, you know, outside of Alaska and things like that, you're not going to need much, much more than that. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'm not saying, um, I guess I'm definitely not saying don't test yourself. I think that's okay to, to do that, but I wouldn't train extended periods of time like that with tons of weight on your back. And, and, you know, I think, I think you're better off making sure that you do things in moderation and prepare yourself for the long haul. And, and then just know that when you get up there, if you've got a moose on the ground, it, there's just no way around it. It's going to be a suffer fest. Unless you shoot it right, right next to the lake, it's going to be, it's going to be suffering. And it's probably wise too to, uh, to live by the motto. Don't, don't let social media talk you into doing something stupid, you know, just doing it for the gram. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Just cause Cam Haynes does something doesn't mean you need to. That's right. Everybody's built differently. Like I've said before, my, I'm built more for endurance and, um, not for super. And it's not that I can't get stronger. It's just some people are built that way. You know, some people are built, my two brothers are built much differently than I am, you know? So just think about that. Think about how you're built and the best way that it'll be for you to recover and, 
Yeah. So anyway, we won't talk. We won't get it. This won't be a fitness podcast. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> yeah, not, I'd not, be a terrible host of that. That's for sure. I'd be a ter- yeah. I'd be a terrible guest because. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're we're not professionals there. Well, before we uh, maybe get into gear, um, can you maybe talk about uh, the first time? You know, you had mentioned some of the animals that you've seen, but maybe the first time laying eyes on a, on a doll sheep. What was that like? You know, that's kind of what you were there for to help out with. You didn't really have an experience with. With that animal and so what was that like uh was it easier to spot harder to spot was the tactics used um something you were familiar with what was that whole thing like yeah so there's kind of two schools of thought when it comes to tactics but i'll first touch on seeing doll sheep for the first time it was actually right when i got to base camp and got settled in oh that's convenient yeah yeah i was able to look across this river and up on this mountain kind of this green saddle there was a whole bunch of white dots And those of you that are sheep hunters or have sheep hunted, you're going to laugh at me, but I immediately grabbed my binoculars in hopes that I would lay my eyes on some awesome full curl ram. And it ended up being all lambs and ewes. And that's generally when you find a group that time of year, that's generally what you're finding. And and it's weird. You can kind of see lamb and ewe areas and then and then you start to find out that there's ram areas much higher i'm guessing yeah higher and just more daunting it seems like those dudes are up there just they're just gangsters man they're just up there and you think about unlike some of the ungulates we're used to that that you know they drop their antlers every year and regrow a new set these guys keep keep those horns on their head their whole life you know, and so it's just really interesting to think about that animal in that in the living in those conditions in that environment, just the things they've laid eyes on, and and they they continually have panoramic the best panoramic mountain views, you know, anywhere in their during their whole life. You know, it's just it's weird. You know, it's it's something that we as humans live to look at. And they live in it all the time. Yeah, and it, isn't it isn't it too that the their, their horns too are kind of like the tree lines, tree rings in a tree, right? That like you said, you, they keep them their whole life, and so there's a lot of story in those. Yeah, so they're so the the rings are called annuli, and again, this is my third season, so I'm not a pro, but I definitely have been hanging out with a pro. Dave knows what's going on when it comes to sheep, and it's really cool to learn about them and, and to be able to kind of distinguish a mature ram from, from an immature ram. And obviously there's, there's some pretty heavy regulation on, on take when it comes to, to doll sheep to rams. And so they need to be full curl. There's, um, and that's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for a full curl ram. And, and so that kind of leads into the tactics. There's kind of two schools of thought is get up on a ridge line and, and, and continue along that ridge line, looking down into kind of valleys and drainages so that hopefully you're either on the same level with them or above them when you find them. And then the other train of thought, or I, I there's people that probably do both techniques in a given hunt, but is to stay in the bottoms and slowly work your way through the bottoms of drainages, looking looking up on both sides of you like as you go up a drainage looking up on your left and right uh, into some of those drainages and and um and areas that that might look like they're they're a little bit more green 
looking up into those areas to see them from the bottom and then kind of make a plan to get within range from there. So uh, I've done, the majority of what I've done is is stayed in the bottoms and then we ascend when we see a legal ram, when we find a legal ram. Yeah, to get in place for a shot. Yeah, yeah. And that um, that's a completely different and interesting you know, quote unquote stock. <laughs> right, it doesn't right. feel like a stock because it's just so usually really high, really far away. And yeah, it just, it can take hours and hours to get within, you know, it's one thing with it, with a bow, but it, to get, to have it be hours to get within rifle range, you know, it's just, that's kind of a weird feeling. Well, to even be able to see something that far away is a foreign to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people would say that they're pretty easy to spot because they're obviously they're white. So you'd think they would be. But one of the issues with just kind of the ever-present sun is that there's a lot of like bleach white rocks that you encounter. So you're constantly kind of being fooled a little bit and I, I think I told you something Dave told me one time is like this old guide adage that when he said it, I thought about it for like three days while I was there to figure out what on earth he meant by it. But he he said to me one time when I was looking, I said, you know, what what are some thoughts on kind of conditioning your game eye, you know, a little bit when it comes to, to sheep? And I'll never forget, he said to me, he goes, well, the thing is when you're looking and when you're glassing, you know, a lot of times sheep will look like rocks but rocks never look like sheep yeah and 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 i and i had to think about that for a while to like i was like but wait didn't those things just cancel each other out right right <laughs> um but but what he's saying is you you'll be fooled often by rocks that that look like sheep but when you look at it the other way around you know you'll never you'll never look at something and think it's a rock when you know you see a sheep, right? You know, and, right. and it's kind of weird. It's kind of it's kind of hard to explain, and and it's even hard, it's like a tongue twister. You don't know which way you're going with it. Even now, I'm like, right, right. what am I talking about? Um, <laughs> but yeah, just kind of that thought of when you see a sheep, you'll know. You know, it's a sheep, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You very rarely see something, and and you're like, okay, well, I I'm sure that's a sheep, and you pull your binos up, and then and then it's a rock, right? You know, and you know, but very often you look at a rock, and you're like, I'm sure that's a sheep, and you pull your binos up, and it's not, <laughs> just a rock, <laughs> yeah, just a rock. So it's weird. It's kind of one of those weird things, and and you know, and that might be me trying to trying to come out with some idea of what he what he meant and it, it actually might have been just a confusing thing he told me just as a just kind of a, as an old guide would say to some some young guy that's just getting into it <laughs> right right you'll, you'll you'll get it on your fifth trip right right which on yeah on this trip I'll find out that what what he said meant nothing <laughs> <laughs> he won't even remember it right right I'll ask him about that and he'll say and he won't even you know remember that he told me that so right but yeah that that was cool seeing sheep for the first time also seeing a, a grizzly bear for the first time in the wild like that and you know I'd seen him in Yellowstone yeah different animal yeah man but to know that this bear has been moseying up and down this river his whole life here with no trees around and he's, you know, scavenging what he can and he's, and he's just excavating, you know, we'd walk up on these areas of tundra that were, 
the size of a few car hoods laying on the ground where he just excavated that ripping tundra up looking for ground squirrels, you know, and yeah, just things like that. You're like, man, these things are coming in contact with animals like that is pretty cool. And actually my first year, nothing the last two years, super close, but my first year had a, a probably a 25 yard encounter with a grizzly that we actually surprised down in a, a Creek drainage that, we didn't see him and we got into the creek and looked to our right and there he was and luckily he was super scared and took off but that that was the that was the closest experience so far that I've had with one yeah that I'm sure that'll put your head on a swivel yeah it did it did definitely well uh, maybe we can move on um to gear you know we're we're all gear junkies uh nowadays and so maybe you could kind of talk about um, maybe a few key pieces of gear that you really liked, um, what you would consider to be most important um, for a trip like that, and then maybe relate it to um, maybe somebody who never gets to make it to, uh, you know, out to Alaska, but but things to think about um, when making maybe a first trip out west or something. Yeah, obviously, you know, one of the first thoughts on a sheep hunt, and I, I think for most guys, I think I would echo, you know, most guys saying that, western hunts you're trying to be as light as you can yeah you know and and luckily dave he's a super awesome guy and he's kind of one of those guys that lives by the adage you know if it if it works why change anything yeah which is totally understandable you know i i i live by that in certain areas myself but i also do enjoy testing like we've said before i think all of us in contact outdoors for the most part are gear nerds and we like messing with trinkets and i think that just carries from being a young man playing with toys man yeah you know you you, you're never you were never you know you were you were never satisfied with one lego set you know you you want one hot wheels car no no you wanted some variety you wanted something different something new you know so i think we carry that as young men even even the way we 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 are in other hobbies like being a mechanic and tools and you know think being working with wood and just things that you kind of accessorize in to to experience and be better with so it's no different for me in hunting and i really like the fact that we've got such a great market that kind of tailors itself to the backpack or backcountry style hunter so I guess for me, I'll try to first start with just Alaska and then kind of transition some of those things to other hunting uh, situations. But for me, I have to look at the season in kind of two distinct sets. So when I'm packing, I'm thinking, okay, I've got a 12-day hunt right when I show up, and then then half a day in between another 12-day hunt. And I get there a couple days early and I leave a couple days after the client. So basically I've got these two sets to think about. And for me, man, I'm just not going to put my partners, Dave and, and the assistant guides, I'm not going to put them through the death of not changing my pants for a month. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, especially right. my... A little bit of hospitality. Yeah, especially my underwear. I mean, you, you, any of you guys that are listening out there, you know how it is when you have been out for five days, you know, let alone 10 or 12 or let alone, you know, 25. Uh, And, and it can be an unpleasant experience if you're, if you've got some partners that are, you know, not changing their drawers. Yeah. So, and some people would say, just get over it. And I'm like, man, I can't, I can't put people through suffering. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and, and one of the things that if you've not done, you know, a lot of Western hunts, you just don't realize how, I mean, you're in close proximity with each other all the time. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it, we're we're literally, in in some of the spike camping we're doing, we're, we're basically cuddling, you know, yeah. every night. We're that close. We're just, like, you and I have been in those situations where you're, you and I got socked in out in South Dakota this year, and we were just in, in a tarp together for around 20 hours, just laying oh, right yeah. next to each other. And so it happens. So I've, I've got to think about two sets of clothing, really. Uh, number one on my gear list, like I said, well, at least in the top five is sunscreen. So I've got that, but also just kind of <laughs> protective, protective, uh, clothing as well. So I'll, let me just start with apparel, Obviously, just because that is kind of one of the main things where you go into it and you're like, you're not going to be going out there naked, you know, and and right. and having the same, ha- having something that works well. And there's a lot of great companies out there. And I I know for us here at Contact Outdoors, we've we've leaned towards First Light because just their conservation stand. We like the people that run the company, and and they make some really good products. and And you kind of want to have that relationship with people that create your gear. You know that you yeah that you believe in what they're doing more than just it being a product. But they definitely make some great gear. So what I what I do is I I I wear two pairs of I bring two pairs of pants. Basically, everything that I name off, I bring in in twos. So. And yes, it can be expensive. <laughs> you know, very much so. You know, it just is. But you, I feel like the the outcome of how the gear performs when you buy gear like this, um, when you're actually needing it in those environments, outweighs the cost for sure. So I've actually had the same two pairs of Corrigate Guide pants from First Light since 2017, and I've run those two pairs. One for twelve days, switched to the next one for twelve days, for for you know those those first two seasons, and I'm I'll use those again this year. Then I'm I wear a lightweight hoodie. It's nice for me to kind of be able to when I get there right away. It it can be warm, so it's nice for me to kind of put a hood up if I need to and get out of the sun. Definitely wearing a hat. Uh, and so when it comes to all of that, I can, you know, I, I've been thinking about doing a, a gear video to kind of show people exactly what it is. And, and I know we don't have the time to get into every specific, but if I were to say the most important aspects of my, my apparel, uh, kit would be those, those pants specifically, the corrugate guide pants. And then I've got a, I've actually got a, a the puffy pants from, First light, the uncompadre puffy pants, they're really nice to have, especially as the season progresses. And then I've got my puffy jacket is actually the the Lost Park Parka from Kafaru. It's just yeah, it's just gear. burly and warm and outside of that, pretty much everything else, underwear included, um, is first light socks. I use darn tough socks uh for the most part. So yeah, just thinking about it in two sets, you know, and, and Thinking about what you need and what you don't need, and that's kind of a tricky thing, specifically for for what I'm doing in Alaska, because you got to be careful about that. You know, to say, "Oh, I don't need this," and you know, "I, I won't need that." It, you can, you can kind of, it can come back to bite you in the butt. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So the nice thing about being a base camp set is I can I can bring things and then decide at base camp if I need to bring them on that 12 day hunt too. So I, I can, 
Not that I can run back to base camp really and grab something I forgot, but I at least have that availability to store some stuff at base camp that I don't think maybe I'll need. And to pick it up in between hunts if you need to as well. Yeah. So all everything that I need to live for the, those 43 days in the wilderness goes in my backpack and you know, I'm able to get it on the plane as a ch- as check baggage, so it's it's under 50 pounds. It's usually mid 40s, like 45 yeah. pounds. You know, and that's everything. You know, that's that's impressive for that length of time. Well, yeah, because that's my that's actually I don't wear my boots on the plane, so that's my boots are in my pack. You know, um, I've got some stuff in a carry on. You know, obviously, but trying to trying to keep it as light as possible. I'm. It's actually interesting because I'm sitting in my gear right room right now, and as I look over obviously having good optics so as we continue with gear outside of apparel having good optics is is just a must there so we use a a straight not an angled a straight spotting scope it's a it's a razor hd from vortex um the it's 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 big you know it's a big spotter but you up there you got to have it I would imagine that you need that not only for spotting, but for being able to judge a ram so you don't go running up a mountain for a ram that's not even legal. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a spotting scope. I personally carry on me some Razor HD 10x42 uh, binos. Uh, those are what I carry on, on a chest harness. Rain gear. I, I should mention in in the apparel side of it, I don't really even think of rain gear as apparel. I think it, it, of that as like almost on the same level as like your sleeping bag or your tent. Gotta have it out there. Yeah, so I I run the the kind of their top tier rain gear from from First Light. I shouldn't say top tier. I guess it would be more their most burly rain gear, and that's their Seek system pants and jacket. I run that. Um, as I'm looking over here, definitely. The boots, actually, this year, the past two years, I had run Crispy Wyoming's, and they're kind of lightweight, and I liked them for the most part. They were comfortable, but uh, I was planning on using them for a third year when I probably shouldn't have. You know, when you start to look at the traction and see that it's worn down almost flat in areas, it's probably starting to become time to either get them resold or look at a new pair of boots. And Well, and those were um, with you not only on your trips to Alaska, but uh, every Western hunt that we've done, right? So it has a lot of miles. Yeah. So, um, the, unfortunately, you know, and it's nothing against the boots, but, um, the lining on the inside of the boot, especially back towards the heel started to come away from the, the, the actual outside of the boot uh, on the inside, you know, up against my heel. And, and that was kind of detrimental because that happened about two weeks ago. And yeah, that's real close. Yeah, two weeks before I leave. So basically, I had to order a new pair of boots overnight them, and and I've been hiking in them since I got them. But I got, I got some Schnees, the Beartooth twos, and they're actually boots that you've had. Yeah, and said that you liked, and I usually like a, not as quite of a high of a of a boot, and they're not high by any means. They're nine inches, but the Crispies were eight inches, and I like that height, but. I'm starting to feel like maybe I might like this nine inch height and they're definitely super comfortable. So I'm excited to see how they handle the season. Yeah, they're very comfortable. And um, like like you and I were talking a little bit earlier too, that extra height on there really gives you a lot of stability in your heel. You don't think that it makes that much of a difference, but man, they just feel solid. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess the other things, a couple things to mention would be 
trekking poles. I use some lecky trekking poles because we use those not only as we're as we're you know traversing that countryside, but also to hold up tarps and teepees. Yeah. So I like those. I I guess when it comes to kind of a kill kit, my, the the two knives that I've got in in my kit, I like to carry always carry the Taito knife, the replaceable blade knife. It's just such a such a killer knife, man. It's just it's it's I've used it quite often and and I know some of the other guys on the team have as well and it's just such a good system. Super cool, and I saw they just came out with their spoon attachment. Attachment, yeah. Like you, you text that to me last last night, and I was like, "All right, yeah, that's it's." They came out with it, and it's it's a really cool design and idea. So I've got that with me, and then the other thing is, I, I found a gentleman in Minnesota, company by the name of Uinta, um, Uinta um, Knives, and he makes some custom blades, and I had him actually make me a custom fixed blade for this year and kind of something more for the brown bear and moose season can get by with definitely that title can do ever you know anything you want it to to do but it's nice to have a stout fixed blade for some of those bigger critters yeah i think it's always smart to to have one of each yeah so i've got that with me and then the and then the other thing would be a garmin inreach mini uh, that's kind of my main source of communication if i need to communicate back home while i'm gone or you know anything like that so yeah so yeah that's uh pack i guess pack i i mentioned that being a kafaro reckoning for a sleep system i i actually use a a quilt and it's from a company called enlightened equipment here in minnesota they've got a quilt and i run a liner in that it's super lightweight it's a synthetic uh quilt and yeah, that's I think probably for gear. Obviously, there's a ton more to list off, but you know, just we'd be here forever if I listed off all the right. gear. But that's some <laughs> gear stuff, and then recommendations for Western hunting. Oh, and somebody might ask about bear protection up there. Yeah, definitely because we see them every day. Dave, <clears throat> Dave requires that I carry a pistol, so I do carry a pistol. Had a client actually gift me a a, a Smith and Wesson. Um, 44 Magnum, uh, air light PD air light. So it's, it's super it's a nice gun. Yeah. It's super light. So I do carry that on my, on my belt, but I also, I also carry bear spray. I just feel a lot more confident. I know I'm not going to miss, I'm not, I'm not a crack shot with a pistol. So I feel confident that, you know, with that bear spray, at least I'm not going to miss. And if, if like some people say that, you know, some people, well, the bear spray is just going to make them more mad, you know, well, I don't think that's backed up real well by accounts, but if that's the right. case, then I've got a pistol and so do the other gentlemen that I'm with. So uh, that's one of the thoughts. It's actually kind of not – it's weird. You, you think about that often before you go into grizzly country, but then when you're in grizzly country, it, that fear kind of fades away. Yeah, the more the more days you spend there, it, it's not at the forefront of your mind as much. Right. Not that it can't happen, but it's something that you don't think of as much. So – yeah, that's probably it for me on the on the on the gear side of things, I suppose, uh for now. Well, maybe we can kind of uh jump we can kind of get a get deep a little bit here for yeah. a second. <laughs> you and I you and I like to you and I like to when it comes to conversations, we usually end up finding ourselves going into some deep water with thoughts yeah, and things right. like that. 
I know, and I, and I sometimes it can be it can be a joke of you know making making hunts and things that are fun like this super philosophical, but uh, <laughs> just kind of the question that I had was just um, you know you're gone for a significant amount of time, and just the you know the world that we live in it's it's fast paced, um, it's connectability to anyone and anything and information you know right at our fingertips, and so maybe you can talk about um, maybe the impact that 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 first trip and then maybe the subsequent trip after that really had on you because you know the world kept going you're gone for a significant amount of time uh major world events happened Mm -hmm. um while you were gone um a lot of stuff that you missed and so what was it like to kind of disconnect really get back to the roots of nature and then um really jumping back into the middle of everything once you got back Yeah, an interesting comment just on something you said about world events happening. Dave has a story. He was actually in his uh, moose area in 2001, uh, September 11th, 2001. Wow. And he didn't hear about that until, until about 10 days later. And, you know, that's pretty kind of crazy. I mean, that's one of the most significant you know, at least American events that I definitely remember in my lifetime. And that was something that he didn't know even happened for 10 days. And, uh, yeah, so it's it. And you and I have talked about this a little bit, just, you know, person to person, but it really comes down to kind of the differences between wilderness areas and then developed areas in, in, in our world. And it's, it's, it just becomes, it becomes very interesting in my day-to-day life, whether it be for work or social media or, you know, connecting with people. It's just such a it's it's such a, a byproduct of daily life to grab my phone. Yeah. And check something on my phone. And and up there, there's no reason to grab my phone. <laughs> Obviously. Right. You know, for about a month and a half. So and I just kind of, from that experience, I kind of really believe that we as human beings weren't created to to bury our face in an electronic device the way that we kind of have and move towards that. And, you know, you have some people say, oh, come on, it's harmless. And, you know, and it, and it might seem that way until you've experienced literally, you know, 40 plus days without it. And then when I come out of the wilderness and it's back to that normal routine, I don't want to grab my phone. Yeah. My whole perspective switches. And and so I think whether you live in an inner city area or you live out in the country or you live in Alaska or somewhere that has wilderness areas or uh, you're super, you know, super rural um areas. I know you know you live in a pretty rural area where you're at, you know, there between kind of Cincinnati and Louisville and I guess for me it would be my my recommendation would be to everyone to give yourself at least those times. It doesn't have to be for 40 days, but it, but even for 40 minutes, put your phone down, go walk outside, you know, and, and walk around and look at birds and, and look at grass and do that for yourself. Because I think it's healthy for, for, for us as human, human beings to experience that. And obviously the degree that I experience it in Alaska is, is kind of astonishing when I get back and realize that I don't think about grabbing my phone like I do, 
you know, once, once, and it sadly that wears off and I go right back to it, you know? Yeah. It's kind of the routines of life a little bit. And I mean, I'm sure you're only there for a few days before you really fall back into that natural rhythm of looking around, being aware of things around you. You know, I mean, we, we've talked about it before, but how many people walk outside and don't know the names of, of the bugs that are on the ground and the type of trees that are planted in their front yard? Yep. You know, but we but we know the latest news on the Kardashians, and it's just a sad, <laughs> sad reality. Hopefully you and I don't know the latest news on them, but, yeah, so, but a lot of people but... do. <laughs> it's yeah, so true. It's true, though. And yeah, it's, you know, one of the things I think about often, too, is, you know, I a lot of my bike rides take place like downtown Minneapolis where I live in Minnesota and, uh, and not knocking, you know, urban areas. And I think they're super cool and just places to eat and things to do. It's really neat. But one of the things I recognized is how, when you be, when it seems like for me anyway, when, when you become familiar with an urban area like that, you feel the city begins to feel smaller to you the more you engage with it. But it seems to be the opposite when you go in a place like a, a wilderness area like the Brooks Range. It y- Being there longer makes you feel smaller. Yeah. You know, because you you engage on a micro level in that environment with your surroundings, and you realize by looking at the small things how vast it truly is. So it just it just kind of continually makes you feel smaller as time progresses. And and I think that's good for us as people. I think we need to sometimes be knocked down off our high horse and realize in a place like that the mountains, the animals, the plants do not give a rip that I'm there and don't care if I die, live or die. They don't care if I drown in the river, they don't care if I fall off of a cliff on a mountain, uh, other than that, they are going to be able to scavenge a carcass of some lowly, you know, <laughs> Minnesota Minnesotan right. that came up to Alaska. Right. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You just, I think that's good for us to kind of. Our, it knocks our pride down a little bit. Yeah, because our lives and our decisions and everything center around ourselves, and things kind of, you know, revolve around us. Yeah, you know we. We have dogs that are domesticated, and we put up buildings, and so animals don't don't stay close to the building. You know, like you said, it's just completely different when it's developed like that, and it's just all about us. And then go going into their territory, where, like you said, um, they they wouldn't even know or recognize if you were there one day and not the next. Right, right. You know, and and that's yeah, and it's so true. And and it and it's interesting too, being gone that long. And spending time with only specific people for that long in a place where you have kind of the same goal and that's you're you're hunting and you're looking for an animal. It it's interesting because it causes me when I get home to love people more. You know, just wow. being around my wife and being around my friends and it causes me to ch- kind of cherish those relationships because you do, you when you're gone for that long, it kinda kinda pulls at you a little bit. Like you think about your friends and your wife and your family and and it's yeah, it's just an interesting experience. Kind of, it, it's kind yeah. of the contrast between places of civilization and places of kind of wilderness. You know that. Yeah, I think it speaks to the to, to the need for both. I think I think we need some wildness in our lives and some quiet. Um, but then we also need those quality relationships, being as social beings as we are. Right. Um, you know, it, it takes both, and I feel like we're very heavy on the social end. 
Um, and I, I think that, you know, just in our world today with, with depression and anxiety and things like that, I think the hyper-connectivity um, plays into that. But just because, you know, I've not, not been to Alaska, but just even the places out west that we've gone, um, for me, I feel so much refreshed when I'm out there and I feel more complete when I come back just even having those seven, eight days um, to be disconnected from everything and responsibility. Um, I feel like it just makes us a better version of ourselves. Totally. Yeah. Danielle mentions all the time when we do go out and, and, and hunt or go out and, and experience wilderness, she always mentions, you know, that she likes how I am when I come back. Right. You know, not just because she missed me, but because it, it changes me a little bit. And I, and I think that's true for everybody to some degree. And yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's one of those things. It's just, a, it's a, it's a really cool, unique experience, but I want to just reiterate and kind of drive the nail home on this idea. And that is you don't have to go to the wilderness of Alaska to experience what we're talking about. And honestly, that's why this is called contact outdoors. The reason we named this group contact outdoors is, was that is that very idea to go connect with the outdoors and, and it doesn't have to be some super intense thing like Alaska and, and yeah, just, I can't stress the importance of that enough to do that. And, and honestly, that's why we've created this platform because we don't only want to share our stories. We want to hear from people out there. We want to hear from our listeners. We want to hear from people out there who are doing things in the outdoors and that could be going to a park and, watching birds. I mean, it could be anything like it doesn't have to be some crazy adventure. And for maybe for you, that is a crazy adventure. So share it with us. Yeah. And I think one of the things too, is, you know, our, the, the group and kind of the, the core team here at Contact Outdoors, we're, we're kind of beginning to, to load up some content that is very diverse. We're very spread out. Um, even, you know, multiple States, um, and areas and experiences and really wanting to show kind of a broad stroke, of really how diverse um, opportunity is to get outside and to experience, you know, the wild and different techniques. And, you know, there's a lot that fits within that. Totally, man. Yeah. And obviously, you know, this is a podcast where we wanted to get, we wanted to get some things across when it comes to gear and, and tactics and how this came about in Alaska itself a little bit. But, you know, the, this is kind of, this is really the goal is to share with people, our experiences, and hopefully those experiences that you, that you're hearing about would inspire you to, to kind of strive to do some things in the outdoors and really put yourself out outside and whether it's hunting or fishing or biking or rafting or climbing or whatever it is, you know, just getting out and getting, getting in a way disconnected from kind of the things that, that, that seem to that seem to hoard our attention, you know, that, that are man-made, you know, instead of getting out and and seeing, I think some of the things that, that really heal us. And there's been a lot of philosophers over the years that have talked about the wilderness being something that heals the human soul, you know, and, and I completely agree. I think that it does. So, you know, we, we're getting pretty philosophical, which is something we like to do every once in a while, but I think it's, it's a good thing. And, yeah, man, I, I I really appreciate you taking the time here to jump on and question me about this stuff. And 
Obviously, we just don't have enough time to get into every nitty-gritty detail. We'd be here for hours about this, but maybe we'll we'll do a follow-up maybe after season and and yeah. kind of be a great recap maybe. And um, you know, I know you just released the article as well that they can read um, uh, about Alaska, and then you're also taking a camera uh, to capture. Uh, a lot of images and stuff from that trip. So you guys will hear a lot more about, you know, Brian's experience out there, but I would encourage people too to go ahead and start collecting, you know, some pictures and images to send us. We love, Brian mentioned it, we love to hear about what you're doing and what you're experiencing. Um, And in a society that takes way too many pictures of their food, maybe you can take some pictures of your adventure and send those to us as well. Or your food in the form of an animal that you're preparing for the plate. (laughs) That's even better. Marry the two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good advice, man. Yeah, and so yeah, we'll we'll probably wrap it up here, guys. Thanks again, Cody, for hopping on with me, and we'll do a follow up and maybe get into some kind of nitty gritty hunt details uh, after the season to talk about how the hunts went and kind of get into some actual uh, talking about downed game and some of the things that we saw, you know, concerning that. So yeah, that's once again, thanks again, man, and thanks to the listeners. Thank you guys. We put out a petition for some feedback a, a couple episodes ago, and 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 you guys have stepped up to the plate and have really helped us. So we we really appreciate everybody who listens and everybody who tunes in and everybody who sends messages and notes, and it really means a lot to us. And we're going to continue to put out this content, uh, and hopefully it will be inspiring to you. And we'd ask that you just can kind of continue to inspire us as well. Absolutely. And, and think about Brian, why he, while he's in Alaska, as you're listening to this and he starts his third adventure there. Yeah. As you're listening to this, I'm super tired climbing up a mountain, hopefully after a big doll Ram. That's, that's the goal. So there you go. Yeah. So thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hey Siri. Play the latest episode of the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast. Okay, Backcountry Dreaming Podcast coming up. Go out, and I've always thought that turkey hunting might be one of the best hunts to take somebody out on that maybe has never hunted before or is reintroduced. Oh, it's crazy fun. It's active. Yeah. It's action-packed. Hey, Apple users, did you know you can access the Backcountry Dreaming Podcast using Siri? You can also find us on Spotify and Stitcher. But no matter where you get your podcasts, remember to subscribe and give us a rating and review. We love your feedback. The Contact Outdoors crew would like to send out a sincere thank you to all of our listeners. The Backcountry Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Contact Outdoors and directed by Brian Holberg. Original music and audio production by Nakota Rankin. Connect with us online. Links to our website, Instagram, and Facebook can be found in the show notes.